and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Maggie, thank you for reading to us. Um, I want to start by uh, telling you about the play Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett. Um, It's a play in which almost nothing happens. Um, There's two main characters in the play, Vladimir and Estragon, and they stand on a bleak country road by a tree. Through the whole of the play, the scenery doesn't change. They stay there because they're waiting. They're waiting for someone named Godot to arrive. But he never comes. Um, Go and see it at the theatre if you like, or, or read it, but... I've basically told you what happens. That's about it. Um, They wait by a tree. Godot doesn't come. All that's left for them to do is to fill the time as best they can as they wait in vain. Vladimir and Estragon eat and sleep and chat and argue and sing and play games and exercise and swap their hats with one another. Anything, quote, to hold the terrible silence at bay. It's not a play for a fun night out, just to (laughs) let you know. But it was voted the most significant English language play of the 20th century. Now, why? I suspect because it actually strikes a chord some of the time with people who are honest with themselves. See, for Godot, it's not absolutely clear what Beckett is getting at, but for Godot, if you like, read God would be wonderful if he showed up in my face, appeared and gave me drive and purpose for my life. And yet, isn't it the case that heaven seems silent? Um, Whatever you say about God on a Sunday, however you sing gladly about him on a Sunday, the alarm clock goes on a Monday morning and you drag yourself into just another day of eating and working and sleeping and so on, surviving keeping busy, holding the silence at bay, maybe. If you you know anything of that, sometimes uh, you can feel bubbling under the surface a sort of a boredom sometimes, or a listlessness with life. What am I meant to be doing? Add on top of that the genuine struggles and sometimes evils of life. And waiting for a God who hasn't come yet becomes not just, well, can become not just boring, uh, but but as it is for Vladimir and Estragon, pressing and distressing. If he is there, why doesn't he come and sort out the mess? Um, Here then, think of a a teenager um, confused about life, not sure what is right or wrong, sitting around for hours on his Nintendo DS, bored. Um, Think of an adult on the treadmill, uh, work, family, a mortgage, travel, responsibilities, maybe some specific personal suffering 
and it seems as they go from week to week like there's no end in sight. Um, Here may be an older woman who's been following Jesus for decades. Um, She bears the scars of multiple hurts, and yet still her God has not turned up. What kind of a good God would leave me waiting and hurting like I do? Um, We're in uh, Matthew 24. In Matthew chapters 21 through 23, Jesus has been in the temple courts in Jerusalem and he's been in conflict with the scribes and the Pharisees. You may have followed us along with us over the past few weeks. Um, These religious men in the temple, beneath the surface, are spiritually and morally rotten. Um, They abuse and hurt their neighbours. Jesus has exposed this um, den of iniquity, really, for what it is. But the question is, as he prepares to leave the temple at the start of our, build, at the start of our uh, reading, will he actually do anything? It's all very well to rattle on about the state the world's in, but will God or God actually come and step in and do something? The answer, uh, the glorious answer actually, as we move into chapters 24 and 25, very simply is yes. Um, Let me put this out here up front. Over the next few weeks in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to see one overarching theme. A theme uh, that speaks straight into a world that is waiting and maybe hurting. And here it is, point one, um, coming up on the screen hopefully. Um, Very simply, Jesus will come again as judge of all. That is, I'd love us to get to grips with this over the next few weeks. We don't live in the no man's land of waiting for God, eh? Uh, We don't live in a world where evil will ultimately prevail. Rather, our world and our history is moving in a straight line towards a date in history when Jesus will appear as judge of all. And every moment of our lives now, we're to wait and live in the light of his certain coming. Um, Just notice with me how this theme starts to emerge um, from these verses, and then we'll reflect a bit on it together. In chapter 3, verse 37, Jesus is in the temple, and he is full of frustrated compassion for the temple and for Jerusalem. You can hear it in his voice. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not long-suffering compassion towards this city. But now, notice, in the face of constant refusal to turn to him, his words harden. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These people will see Jesus again. Now what will happen? Next verse, 24 verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus will come again to this temple, this marble and gold long-lasting, this will be here forever place, and promises total destruction. (laughs) 
Um, last week, Meg and I were on holiday, and we watched, uh, as a special holiday treat, we watched a documentary on the building of the Shard um, in London. Uh, you may know it. 310 metres worth of glass skyscraper overshadowing London. <clears throat> actually, it was so dull, we only watched the first 10 minutes, um, which was actually about the removal of Southwark Towers. You won't have heard of it. The 100-metre-tall building, which happened to, unfortunately, be in the way of the Shard. <coughs> We didn't see any building. All we saw was demolition. Now, I don't know whether you're into demolition in a big way. Um, And I'm not sure many people have much of an emotional attachment to what was a fairly ugly tower block. But there was something, for 10 minutes, watchably sort of brutal about a demolition job. Um, A £100,000 ball swinging from a crane repeatedly into this glass and metal took six months, and then this once proud structure simply raised to the ground, uh, carried away in lorries. That's what Jesus is talking about in verse 2. This majestic temple, right at the centre of the life of Israel, systematically dismantled until there's nothing left of it. And it leaves the disciples desperate to know in verse 3, tell us, Jesus, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? Um, Now, slow down here a second. Uh, In view for the disciples, right at this point, is the promised destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But, and this is really important for us to get hold of, As we move through chapters 24 and 25, um, two chapters which actually are one long speech in Jesus, from Jesus, answering these disciples. As we move through these chapters, it becomes clear that Jesus speaks not just of the coming day of judgment on the temple, but a coming day of judgment on the whole world. So that by the time we reach the end of Matthew 25 we see crystal clearly a vision of the very end. Um, Just notice that with me. Flip forward a couple of pages, if you would, to page uh, 1002, um, chapter 25 and verse 31. As we'll see over the coming weeks, the, the content of chapters 24 and 25, people are... Some people are unsure as to whether Jesus is speaking about the temple or about the final day. Um, But there is crossover. And when we get to 25 verse 31, see what happens. When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. It's a vision of the final day. When Jesus comes at the end of the age and all of the nations and each one of us will be gathered before him and stand exposed before the throne of judgment. And to each individual, Jesus will either say, come to me, you who are blessed, or depart from me, you cursed. I will dismantle and destroy you. Um, This, then, is the backbone of these next two chapters and absolutely central to the claims of the Christian faith. 
the public appearing of Jesus Christ as all-consuming judge. For the temple, initially in 70 AD, for the whole world, eventually, in front of us. And there's all sorts of things we could say about this uh, coming day. Before we go on, though, um, just reflect with me a touch. It, it almost goes without saying, doesn't it, that to, to modern ears, the idea of a future end-time judgment um, is, well, it's pretty unbelievable, first of all. More than that, unacceptable, probably. I mean, we'll ask you a simple question. Do, do you believe that that day will come? And that you will stand before Jesus Christ. See, to the, to the naked scientific eye, it seems as though the world's just going round and round and on and on. Um, the sun was shining brilliantly at 8 o'clock this morning as I walked on Midsummer Common. It was quiet and beautiful, rowers on the river. This looks solid. It will last forever, surely. At some point, maybe, um, the newspapers tell us once or twice a year, maybe some massive catastrophe Um, a nuclear accident, or we'll be hit by an asteroid, or the sun will finally uh, come to the end of its life and will be swallowed up. But but do you really want to believe that there will be a fixed point at the end of time when you will stand before a personal God? It is hard to believe in a sense, is it not? More than that, actually, offensive in some respects, It's hard to know whether it's acceptable today to believe in a God who at some point will override our individual freedom and our personal moral compass and say we've done wrong and then punish us. It's a weird thing to think about within these four walls. Outside of these four walls, imagine talking about that. It's so 19th century, stern God, Victorian. One reflection. Just come at this another way, though. Um, And I wonder if you can sense with me actually what a deeply good thing it is that one day Jesus will come as judge. See, imagine we are alone in a massive, impersonal universe. No God who sees or cares. Our lives are going nowhere. What would life be like? We might, we might long to matter. Uh, we, might, we might long for wrongs to one day be righted and evil to be overcome. But it would just be whistling in the wind, wouldn't it? Imagine how soul-destroying that would be. The coming day of judgment is a good, good thing. See, it says to us we, we live in a personal universe. Uh, with a God who not only made us, but who cares for us. Um, he charges our lives with meaning and purpose. And on the day when he comes as judge, he will right all wrongs. He will do away with the evil that has been done to you. And it will be crystal clear on that moment that our every living moment carries eternal significance with him. For sure, a deadly, deadly serious day. And yet a day that says to us, every second counts and matters now for him. 
how the Pharisees in the temple um, love themselves more than their neighbours. It matters how we act and treat one another and treat our God. It matters. It will matter for God forever. Point one this morning. Jesus will come again as judge of all. Now, having put that in place, um, what we're going to see over the coming weeks in Matthew 24 and 25 is that there's all sorts of implications of that that Jesus draws out for us. How should we live today? What must we do, importantly, to be right with God on that final day? Um, But for this morning, for the rest of our time, as we come back to Matthew 24, the disciples turn to Jesus in verse 3 and ask him now an obvious, obvious question. Um, Come back to Matthew 24 and verse 3. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? I don't know if you read that kind of question and think we're into kind of loony territory. Because there's a sense in which, isn't there, there's all sorts of, and maybe you know this, there's all sorts of splinter groups and religious nutters who love to take a view on the end of the world and talk about it lots. And yet, it is not a crazy question to ask. If this day really is coming, if... If world history as we know it will one day close and I will stand before Jesus Christ. If right now life is squeezing on me and hurting me, I want to know. Jesus, what is the timescale of your coming? Is it soon? These questions Jesus does take two chapters to answer. Today what we're going to do um, is just look up to the end of verse 14. What I hope we'll see is striking in these unusual and strange verses, actually, is that rather than revealing to us key signs and dates, Jesus instead opens out for us what life will be like to follow Jesus in the period before the end. Were you to put your faith in Jesus for the first time today, what could you expect in life before Jesus comes as judge? Let's move through this, uh, verses 4 to 14, together. Jesus will come again as judge of all, point one. Um, Let's get point two up on the screen if we can. Um, Before then, first off, first bullet point, don't be deceived, Jesus says. We read from verse four. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. I'm not sure if he's here this morning. Six weeks ago, uh, Matthew Knight and I, he normally sits over there, were in Subway. Uh, the sandwich bar on Hills Road. Um, We were chatting together about various things and then we prayed together um, across the table. And as we did, there were two Indian men on the table next to us who looked over with interest as we were praying. Five minutes later, they were all over us uh, at the table with us next to us and telling us 
that they have hidden knowledge of the secrets of God. Things we didn't know. We should give them our mobile numbers and meet up with them. We didn't. These two men, serious men, with Bible verses at the ready, um, were from the Emperor Emmanuel Church in India. Um, They believe that the end of the world is near and that Jesus is among us. And if we join them, then we'll be safe. This church in India has recruited thousands of people. They've got missionaries in Cambridge. Don't go to Subway. (laughs) What Jesus says is, don't be led astray. Um, It's the first time that's happened to me for ages. Um, I guess it may not have happened for many of us. Don't be led astray by little groups saying, come to us, we know he's here. Don't be led astray by tragedies in the world around you. Um, Wars and famines and earthquakes, they're not absolute signs that Jesus is right on the door. Verse 8 says all these are the beginning of the birth pains. That's striking, actually. Notice Jesus doesn't say, relax, earthquakes are just natural, that's science. No indicators for us that at some point the whole world will be shaken. Follower of Jesus, then, won't be deceived by the cries of cults or the disasters of this generation. I don't know whether you sense that these, two, these few verses uh, feel a bit distant from you and from life now. I'm not going to be taken in by some wacky cult. My guess is few of us will get jittery about Jesus' return when we read of famines in Africa. Um, That may be so. But I just wonder, is that because my faith is so strong and certain? (laughs) Or is it rather that the coming of Jesus Christ in the future is so outside my expectations? I'll poo-poo any possibility, actually of him appearing I don't know life now Jesus says in the present firstly don't be deceived secondly let's get the next sub point up endure through trouble let's follow it through verse 9 is no enticing advert for following Jesus then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake We're really into these verses now. Following Jesus and joining a church, Jesus is saying here, may well not be a hugely positive life choice. Um, The 20th century, there were more Christians killed for simply being Christian than in any other century. Um, In the last four weeks, um, 300 Christians were killed in one small corner of Nigeria. Um, gunmen bursting into a meeting like this and spraying the place with automatic fire. Um, If you become known at your sixth form or your office for following Jesus, you will not be universally liked. Keep going, verse 10. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Christian churches will fall apart, believers will fall out, some who decide to believe will stop completely. Verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. It will be hard to know who to trust in church life. Verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. In societies where 
Christians form a smaller and smaller minority, churches get tempted to become more and more defensive. Uh, We close in on ourselves to protect us from the enemy out there and become cold and shriveled and hard. Not a barrel of laughs. Why on earth is Jesus saying this to us? I think because if we don't hear these kind of words in advance, at some point a Christian believer might find themselves knocked off their feet. Um, I could tell you right now about men and women I know who, who became Christians five or ten years ago or so, started brightly and kind of had an expectation of the Christian life that it would basically go well as they look forward to Jesus' coming, aware of God's blessing to them. But now years down the line, they're shaken because God doesn't seem as close as they hoped and church life has been disappointing and they've moved around a few different churches to find the church that should work, but they never do. And it's hard for them to keep going as Christians and their love for God has dried up and they're close to giving up. think actually if you if you become a christian uh, early in your life um, i don't know whether it's just my experience but i think as you get to your mid-30s which is not particularly old i think that's the point at which i look back now and think actually i know life has not gone as i planned Uh, most of us when we arrive in our 30s will will have experienced some moment of intense suffering or expectation shattered um, whether it's health or family, or relationship, or infertility, or whatever it is. And you start to say to yourself, this is not what I expected. What Jesus wants to do here is lay the groundwork for what the Christian life will really be like. Discipleship, a long-distance marathon. You'll cramp up, it will hurt, people will fall by the wayside. Jesus urges, verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. What do you do with verses like this in the Bible? Jesus will come as judge of all. It is a glorious and wonderful thing. That's the message of verses of chapters 24 and 25. Before the end, though, have you got your expectations right? Wars, earthquakes, false messiahs, martyrdom, hatred, betrayal, division, endurance. Okay, here's a final question for this morning. Why, then, has Jesus not yet come? See, say I believe in him. Um, I know he's full of compassion and kindness. He has died for my sins. I know that one day I will see him face to face. I throw myself into following him, and yet, week by week, I know and experience even the smallest bit of trouble that Jesus is describing here. Why has he not come yet? Why has he not spared the 300 Christians killed in Nigeria last month? Why is he holding back from stepping in and putting things right? There is a reason. Verse 14, as we finish. 
And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. One short verse, very little from Jesus. The reason, seems to me, why Jesus has not yet come, and the number one priority for us today. Proclaim the gospel. Jesus is saying here, if you can get a grip on it, this is what our lives in the 21st century are for. First off, obviously, to believe it for yourself. Because the glory of the gospel of the kingdom is that Jesus Christ, the one who will come as judge of all at the end of time, because of his compassion towards us and the world, allowed himself on the cross to be judged for the sins of the world. The one who will judge gives himself in time to be judged for us. He was cursed and dismantled and destroyed on the cross. So that right now today in the 21st century, all who place their trust in him find their sins forgiven and nothing to fear on the day of judgment. It is, it is such a joy when you start to get to grips with what will happen on that future day to know that on that day he will say to me, Chris, I died for you. You are mine. Come. But now, knowing that I am safe, one great task to drive my every waking moment, to share with others this extravagant offer of grace. Um, I'll always remember something an old friend of mine called Pete said to me. Um, it, was the, it was the late 1990s. Um, Pete and I and a couple of others were sitting around talking about a film. It wasn't a proper discussion of group. It was just we were chatting. We were talking about Titanic, the 1997 classic. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Kate Winslet standing on the front of the bow being in love um, and the boat sinking, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Anyway, obviously, obviously the ship's going down. Um, you get to the point in the film where the, where the bow is starting to disappear. There's one brief moment in the film where as the camera pans round, um, there is a priest with his little flock gathered around him, um, huddled together, and he's reciting some words of comfort to them from the Bible. They're going to be safe. They're going to be with their God. Um, and I was half thinking, and I said something like, isn't that brilliant? Those believers comforting each other in the face of disaster. And Pete looked me in the eye and he said, it is not brilliant, Chris. They've got to be turned outwards. As the ship goes down, telling people about the offer of the Lord Jesus Christ before it's too late. <laughs> You're dead right. Urgently, compassionately insisting there is a place of safety from the judgment to come. Uh, with my family and my friends and the people I bump into, an opportunity at some point where I can say, can I tell you what I've discovered about the Lord Jesus Christ? In waiting for God, nothing much happens. Don't go and see it. He doesn't come. They're waiting in vain. They eat, they drink, they sleep. Life without significance, um, hurting one another without hope. 
from our verses today to the bored teenager and the adult on the treadmill and the lifelong follower with multiple scars and all of us in between. Waiting for God out is not real life. The one who died and was raised from the dead will come as judge of all. He will appear on that future day. You can bet your life on it. Today then, and this week, don't be deceived. Endure through trouble. Proclaim the gospel. And live for the Lord Jesus Christ with every ounce of your being. Because as you do that, you find significance and meaning for Monday morning and for the rest of your life. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, these words from Jesus are at the same time, uh, seems to me, sober and yet wonderful. It is a, a glorious and a terrible thing to know that the Lord Jesus will come again one day as judge of all. Yet we praise and thank you today uh, that this one who will judge has been judged for us on the cross. Praise and thank you for the offer of refuge now that will keep us safe on that day. Father, for those of us who follow Jesus today, enable us, please, uh, to endure through the troubles of this life, to hold on to our faith in Christ until the day when he appears. Father, give us... um, Give us uh, eyes to see how significant our every waking moment is. And enable us uh, not to keep this good news of Christ to ourselves, uh, but to speak to others with great compassion of the safety to be found in Christ right now and today. Our Lord, be with us this week and move us to live lives of energy and obedience to you. For Jesus' sake. Amen.